<clears throat> well, we turn to Ephesians 5 again. We began looking at last week. We're looking at it from different uh, contexts. And so let's read again from Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33. Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 22, says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We do thank God for his word and ask him to help us apply it this morning to our lives. Well, up to this point, we've spent a lot of time considering a lot of the most sustained passages in the Bible about what it means to be male and female. And that's given us sort of a framework for masculinity and femininity. And now we're going to start sort of dealing with the implications of that as it relates to the home, the church, the workplace, the world, and so forth, these different spheres in which we operate. And this morning we begin with the home. And as we do so, I do want to point out, somewhat out of necessity, that this week and next week may be the most, um, what we might call marriage-centric of, of, our, of our times together, simply because Scripture treats marriage as, a, as the common experience for for most men and women, and so it sometimes discusses the interplay between masculinity and femininity in the home within the context of marriage. But that's not to say that there isn't uh, things to say in the midst of all this to all of us. And so particularly, especially for young people, because some of you kids might go, well, I'm not married (laughs) yet, and so how do we understand that? Well, we're going to talk an awful lot about singleness before we talk about marriage, but but even when we're talking about that, and, and some of you married folks might say, well, when you're talking about singleness... Why do I care about that? But I would encourage you not to check out during the portions that aren't aimed square directly at you because uh, I will try to point them out, but there are numerous applications that I think all of us can draw principles of what God is getting at in the hearts of his people, Uh, whether husbands or wives, whether single men or women, uh, even for you who are kids and that are uh, thinking about marriage one day. Um, or maybe you're so young you're not even considering and thinking about that yet, but the, what type of character qualities um, for uh, believers ought to be exhibited amongst men and women. So I um, want to encourage you to, to, to stick in there for those persons that may not be as directly applicable to you and, and see how God might use them. And even at, at the very least, uh, what we can do when we're hearing, you know, when we're talking to husbands, it can give wives um, uh, good counsel for what to expect and not expect from their husbands, but also how to pray for their husbands. And the same for husbands when we're talking to wives, the same for single people, how to pray for the marriages in our church, and for the married people, how to pray for the single people in our church, and and it goes on. 
um, in that way. Well, we, before we get to talking about marriage and, and the, the, the situation of marriage and how that will function, it's essential for us really to begin with the condition that all of us begin life in and that we will in a different way exist for in eternity, and that is a, a life of, of singleness. We begin there, and that will be uh, probably a different form of singleness when we're in, on the new earth after the resurrection, but nonetheless, it will be a form of singleness um, because as collectively, we'll be married to Christ as the, the bridegroom of the church. But Scripture, again, does give us a lot of, 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 of fodder for marriage, but I think it actually does give us a lot of interesting things to think about in terms of singleness. And so um, we want to talk about uh, this uh, understanding of masculinity and femininity better, I think we will f- find a better understanding of it in totality if we begin by looking at our responsibilities as individuals, as just individual people. And so we begin by thinking about biblical masculinity and femininity in the context of singleness. What does that mean? And two main points kind of that we want to make here. And the first is something that I think the church hasn't done a a great job of emphasizing, and that is that the Bible actually celebrates godly singleness. The the Bible speaks about it, and it it, it celebrates it. It doesn't treat it as something that is less than. It doesn't treat it as something that is to be ashamed of. It doesn't treat it in those ways at all. In fact, it, it reminds us in the pages of the New Testament that though marriage might be the more common expression of sexuality with regard to uh, males and females, as they work together within the body of Christ, they meet, and that more people will probably over time be married than not. At least that has been the case. Maybe that's changing now in our 21st century, but at least historically that's always been the case. And so the Bible speaks a lot about that because it's common. But the Bible never insinuates anywhere that marriage is superior to singleness in terms of your relationship before God. That it's necessary and beneficial, especially for those who might be uh, driven to uh, types of loneliness or even temptations. But that it's not in itself, being married does not make you superior to any single person. That, and, and that is different actually in Christianity than it is in other cultures. There are lots of other religions and cultures where it's almost a stigma that, it, that you would be seen as, well, something must be wrong with you. There must be a, uh, some kind of curse upon you or the gods might be... Um, frustrated with you, and so they, they refuse to allow you to be married, and, and isn't that bad? And, and this is where we have to be careful within the church that we don't echo some of those kind of worldly thinking and, and misunderstandings of that as if every single person needs to be just cried over because they, they haven't found a husband or a wife, and uh, we have to be careful about doing that. And I can say that from personal experience. People are often well-meaning, um, but often uh, if you're single, people can look at you as if you're somehow defective and uh, like, oh, well, you know, you know one day th- th- maybe that'll happen. And it's like, well, maybe that person uh, isn't pursuing marriage for, for whatever reason, that God has done something different in their life. Or maybe they are single for a time and will pursue marriage. Um, but they certainly, if that's the case, they know it. They don't need to be reminded about it by you every week, right? And so, and so uh, I think the church just needs to be, do a better job of helping and ministering to those who are single, whether it's single for a lifetime or single for part of a lifetime. But all of us have been there at least at some point. And the New Testament, though, extols the value of the single life. I mean, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says that to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, Paul says. 
And so he says there's a value in doing it. And there's various reasons in the context of, of 1 Corinthians why he says that. But, but he says, I, I encourage you to, to not rush into marriage just for the sake of marriage. But that there's actually things that are good, that there are good things for you uh, being a part of uh, living a godly single life. He says later on in that chapter that the unmarried man, this is one of the reasons, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. So according to, to Paul, according to Scripture, singleness, one of the things that it might enable someone to do is to serve God with less divided affections and um, attentions in this life and devotions. Um, that therefore it can be a gift to be embraced, not a curse to be avoided or some inferior state, as long as we pursue it from the, from the right reason, not out of selfishness, not out of greed or vanity, not uh, to be a player or any of these types of things, right? Um, but to pursue it out of godly reasons is actually a very good thing. So you don't need to be married or have children to be fully masculine or fully feminine. And, of course, who is our primary example of that beyond even the Apostle Paul? And that's, of course, Jesus Christ, the greatest exemplar of biblical manhood and yet someone who lived for 30 or 40 years as a single man. We know that from Matthew 22 that in the course of eternity there will be no giving or receiving in marriage, that the worldly institution of marriage will somehow cease to exist because we'll all be married corporately as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ to Christ our bridegroom. So for this season, whether we're single or married, it's ultimately to prepare us for that season and to look forward to that. Now, by the way, when you think, I think a lot of married people uh, at this point, when they, when they think about what it means to not be married to the one that they're married to, uh, it's, what is that going to be like? And oh, isn't that sad? And I will give you an honest answer. I don't know what that will be like. But I can say that if we trust in the goodness of God and what we know about theology, God is not going to take something that he said is good, and that is the institution of marriage, something he established. He is not going to take that away and give you something less, give you something worse. And so I can, with absolute confidence, and say that those of you who are married, though you won't be married to your spouse in the same way in eternity, I believe you will have a deeper more intimate, more loving, more glorious relationship with your husband or wife than you ever will have on earth in eternity. It will just be different in some way. And that fellowship will be with each other. It will be with the body of Christ. I don't think God will erase your memory and you'll be like, oh, I forgot I was married to that person, right? I don't think that God does that. He will transform, actually, your relationship in some glorious way and you will have a sweeter communion with each other just as we will have a much more sweet and intimate communion with Christ and with all of the people of God in eternity. What is that going to look like? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. God has deemed it not necessary for us to know now but simply to trust him in faith. So that's an important thing to get out in front, to say that the Bible celebrates singleness for men and for women, whether for a time or for their lives. And for some people it can be they begin single, they get married, and then circumstances happen. There are unfortunately divorces that happen and, 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 and marriages fall apart. And then um, also by death marriages are separated. And the Bible has things to say about the value of people pursuing godly living even in the midst of their singleness regardless of why or when those things happen. The second thing about singleness that I want to emphasize is that the single Christian 
is actually able to express their manhood or womanhood in a family. And the family, the primary place where singleness, where single manhood and single womanhood is to be experienced is in the life of the family of God. It's within the church. And this actually does apply whether you're single or not, but it especially applies to those who are single. Because like we've said, single believers may be unmarried for a season or for their whole lives, but they are indeed still part of a family, the local church, which is a reminder to us as well that we need to do as good of a job as we can of showing love and affection and, and, um, and, and giving meaning and affirmation to those in our midst who are single, to recognize that, uh, that they're part of our family just as much as married couples, just as much as families with children. And that these single people can serve their church family in distinctly masculine and feminine ways, even though they're single, right? <clears throat> so let me give you just a few suggestions. And again, most of these apply to married men and women too, but I want to focus on those who are unmarried or, or maybe widowed or, or, or divorced. For single men, if you find yourself in singleness, we go back to our theology that we, we kind of laid the groundwork for in Genesis 2, where we saw Adam's job description was to work and keep the garden. And we talked about this as a charge to provide for and to protect the sphere of responsibility that God had entrusted to him. And from this, there are a number of applications we could make for a single man's relationship to the family of God and how to best express his masculinity. Well, you can provide for others, and you can provide for them spiritually, right? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus if it's not fundamentally helping other people to follow Jesus well? Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 to treat younger men as brothers. Well, are you looking for opportunities to do that? Are you finding those whom you can mentor or disciple or be accountable to mutually and to show them brotherly love by, by having a relationship with them, by discipling them in the word? And again, this applies equally to men and whether you're single or not. But especially single men maybe have the opportunity because they have more time to devote to something like this to help disciple and help encourage younger men as they grow up. Also, you can provide for ministries financially in ways that maybe other people can't. Um, single men may be able, because of their life circumstances, to give more to not just their local church but to other ministries and other um, charitable organizations and to individuals and different things. They, they potentially can give more to those things than they could if they had the responsibility of caring for wives and children. So there is some freedom in that that is opened up to single men. So if the Lord blesses you with material resources, I encourage you to faithfully and joyfully steward as well. Although, John Paul, you should fix your engine first um, so you can drive to work. Uh, but, you know, Acts 20, and it's more blessed to, to give than to receive. And, and if we really believe that, we look for opportunities. And so single people sometimes have more opportunities in those areas. So give spiritually, give even materially in some ways. But second, you can take responsibility as a member of the body of Christ to protect the church. Right? You can provide and protect even as a single man. You can protect the church and its doctrine. One of the best things that any believer can do, but especially young men who don't have other responsibilities like uh, family at home, is to spend more time studying God's Word. Use that time to develop a deeper relationship with the Lord, to know more about doctrine, to know more about Scripture, to help the church to protect uh, itself from false doctrine, from false wolves, false teachers. 
Study the word for your own soul's benefit first, of course, and then do so that you might be equipped to teach others, that it would, it would help you in your discipling of other people over the, time, over the length of your life. And if you're a single person, don't let that dissuade you from striving to being in leadership, to being a deacon or an elder someday, or at least to walk with the same integrity that characterizes those offices, even if you don't desire those offices, according to the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And part of that includes managing your own household well. So just because you're single doesn't mean that you have no responsibility to manage your household. It means keeping a watch on your finances, doing things like budgeting. It means keeping your actual living space in order so that you're not living in some sort of a, a, you know, man den that looks more like a pigsty and has a smell to go with it. It means being dependable in your relationships, whatever they are, and pure in your thought and, um, you know, sexual habits. These types of things are really important for, for young, especially young, but all single men to take responsibility to manage their households well, even if that's a household of one. It means how you interact with roommates if you have them and those sorts of things. And lastly, it does mean having a protective demeanor for the ladies in the church, for the young ladies and the older ladies in the church. Uh, In appropriate ways to them as sisters in Christ, do you look and make sure that you are are seeking to be a protector. This doesn't have to be chauvinistically, you know, uh, doing this in, in displays of grandeur, but it's simply little things. Like you notice that you make sure that maybe there's a, a woman who is alone and no one's come to pick her up. You make sure not everybody leaves before, before she has a ride home, or you make sure that people are protected. You, you, you take things that are you're concerning to leadership, and you're just looking out for people, and, it's, and particularly uh, other ladies uh, in, the, in the life of the church. So are you having this brotherly affection toward the other ladies in the church? And are you using that as you treat them as sisters who, who you don't want to see abused or mistreated in any way? So like Paul told Timothy, part of protecting women is to treat them with absolute purity. It's 1 Timothy 5.2. And are you, are you having that relationship with the ladies in the church? What about for single women? Um, again, we go back to Genesis, and we saw there that Eve was created as a suitable helper. And we said that that's not a, a, um, a term of disparagement, but it's actually a term of need. Adam needed help, and he could not fulfill the commands that God had given him to be fruitful and multiply without help. He was deficient. He, he, it was not good. He was exactly who God created him to be, but he needed, he needed others to help. And so this means that even single women can express their femininity through helpful, encouraging service and, uh, and look for ways to do that. So if you're a single woman, take that posture. If you're a single young lady, take that posture, apply it as you can. Um, so, of course, elders who lead the church are, are, are men, and we need the encouragement and advice and help of all the women in our church. We need your input. So we, have, we will inevitably have blind spots so that we can help pastor our church better. Um, and and that, those things happen. You express those to us, and we're grateful for those because there are things that women will think of that men, I mean, just completely go over our heads. We would have no idea. We'd say, oh, that's a, you're, you're right, and let's handle that. And so the question is that the wisdom and perspective of women is invaluable to leadership. And so is, is your instinct to trust the elders to extend a willingness to help with whatever needed and however best you can use your gifts. So I exhort all the the sisters in our church 
to see this as a significant role in building up the body of Christ and a part you can play. Secondly, it's also feminine to nurture spiritual health, and uh, particularly of other women. Again, Adam called his wife Eve because she was the giver of life, and we inferred that femininity at the heart of it involves uh, nurturing life in others, not just physical life through being a mom, which some women will do, but cultivating spiritual life, which is what all Christian women are able to do. And again, in Titus 2, which we'll get more to later, we're told that older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So note that what it doesn't say is that only married women can teach other married women. Right? You don't need to be married to teach other people about marriage. I hope that's sort of clear this morning. I'm teaching on marriage as one who doesn't have the experience of marriage. By the way, that tells you that I'm I'm not giving you advice based on my experience. I'm only giving you advice from what Scripture can teach me. Right, And not that there isn't a, a, a wonderful place, and we need those married couples within our church to help disciple other married couples. Um, but the Bible is, again, sufficient for this task. And so women can be encouraging other women, whether single or married, one to another on how uh, what word of, the Word of God says to help women in a motherly or sisterly sort of way. And that can work out in a lot of different ways. You know, encouraging text messages, emails with wisdom and encouragement, uh, spending time together and encouraging one another, and again, reading the Bible, studying, praying together, all these different things can happen. And to that end, you're able to cultivate a spiritual beauty within the body of Christ, especially as you relate to the men in the church, whether married or unmarried. Peter's instructions to wives is certainly applicable as much to single women as it is to married women. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And Peter's not primarily talking about personality here. Uh, You can be outgoing and talkative and and still easily obey this verse. He's talking about women who are content in the Lord, caring towards others, committed to the good of the church, and not, therefore, self-centered when it comes to their reputation or physical appearance that might be a temptation uh, to others. And so it's about, uh, it's about humility, it's about um, chastity, it's, it's, it's about all these things, modesty. Um, and, of course, that applies equally to men as well, um, especially in our day. Um, and so, so I hope you see that even in the context of these kind of theological foundations that we've laid, there is a lot that we can say to single people and value them in the life of a church, value them in the body of Christ and um, expect things of them, and not just say, oh, well, your life will begin when you get married, or you'll be able to serve whenever you get married. To say, no, even right now, you can be a part, an integral, important part, and used in ways that married people can't, because they have other obligations to husbands, to wives, and to children. And so look for those ways. Pray about those things if you're single this morning. That includes those of you who maybe, especially as you're in your teenage years or we got fresh teenagers I know around. And so use those opportunities to think how to be a, a really holy, godly, biblical young man or young woman. Okay, but what does that look like in the context of marriage? What does that look like in the context of marriage? And again, a lot of these things, there's principles here that will apply to everyone, whether married or not. But the Bible says direct things to those who are married. Um, and I kind of have a summary here of, of, of kind of applying our definitions of masculinity and femininity and then how does that work in the life of a marriage? Well, 
kind of my summary is that men and women are created equal, right? We've talked about that a lot. Created equal, but with distinct God-given roles within the family. Husbands lovingly leading as providers and protectors, and wives respectively submitting to husbands as helpers. Okay, now what does that mean? Easy to say that, but what does that mean to unpack? Well, it's important, again, in our day and age to, to remind ourselves that the Bible rejects the assumption that women are any sense of inferior to men. The Bible always says that men and women are equally made in God's image of equal value, worth, and dignity. Right? Genesis 1, I think, puts that pretty much to rest. And they are also, according to Galatians 3.28, equally heirs of the kingdom of God, that in Christ there is no male or female. The Bible also rejects the assumption that submission entails automatic obedience to every man or automatic obedience to every command, especially if they're wrong or sinful. It rejects the idea that a husband's headship leads to or justifies male oppression or abuse. So if you see abusive leadership of any kind, especially within the home, that's not biblical leadership. But that said, when we go back to Ephesians 5 that we read, as we turn to the Bible's parameters for how husbands and wives relate to one another in the home, well, I think we can make at least four observations. There's probably there's way more, obviously, that we can make, but at least four observations that we can make from the passage. And you will find that these observations, I'm not clever enough to reword them. They're basically just what the text says, okay? But I want to highlight these four things. The first is that Paul clearly calls wives to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord, okay? That's clear, but what does that mean, and what does that look like? Well, in verse 21, Paul gives this command for Christians. We didn't read it, but if you look at verse 21, he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there is a command at the end of that paragraph, before we get to wives and husbands' responsibilities, that says that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And a lot of the commentators point out that in a way, that's the command, and what we have in verses 22 to 33 are the ways that wives and husbands can accomplish that command, can keep that command. How do we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? Well, the answer is, if you're a wife, it's by lovingly submitting to your husband as unto the Lord. And if you're a husband, it's by loving your wife as Christ loves the church. And in this way, you actually are submitting to one another. You're deferring. Your, your priority is the other within the context of marriage. Okay, And, uh, and this is the way it always is, right? A husband is not going to be effectively loving his wife as Christ loves the church if all he's doing is demanding her submission. That doesn't work. And a wife is not going to be lovingly submitting to her husband's authority and leadership if she's just always demanding of him uh, saying, well, you're not loving me the way Christ loved the church, so I'm not to submit to you as under the Lord. right? Because that's just going to go back and forth. And in fact, if a husband would rightly love his wife as Christ loved the church, most wives would have not much problem, most of them, I think, most of you, not much problem submitting unto your husbands as unto the Lord. It's the problem is that because marriages are made up of women and men who are both sinners, we both fail in our responsibilities. And therefore, we take, uh, it's difficult. But oftentimes, we know this, those of us who have done marriage counseling, Evan and I talk about this a lot, marriage counseling often begins with husbands and wives pointing fingers at each other's deficiencies and not taking care of their own sinfulness. And often, one of the goals of marriage counseling is to have people sort of ignore their spouse for a little bit and focus on their own relationship with the Lord, their own pursuit of godliness and holiness, their own responsibilities, 
And if both parties will do this, it's amazing how loving and wonderful marriage can be. And to the point of, I won't tell the whole story, have Nevin tell it to you sometime, about a husband and wife who came in basically ready for divorce and said, we know this is kind of a, a step we've got to do. Help us divorce uh, each other uh, biblically. <laughs> and, and Nevin said he did a good job, maybe. He says he doesn't always have the best poker face, but he must have had a good poker face at this point, saying, you know, he heard, or this was a friend, this was a, a colleague. I'm messing it up somehow. An example of, in a counseling class. And this guy kept his cool and said, oh, okay, well, let's, let's talk about some things. And he just began focusing on their own relationships with the Lord, their own walks with Christ. And they began dealing with those things, and he kept kind of putting them off and saying, well, we'll deal with the marriage issues later. Well, over time, as they began to develop more godly attitudes in their own walk with the Lord and their own godly attitudes toward their own responsibilities, you know, weeks later, when it comes to the question of, well, let's talk about this divorce again, the couple were like, divorce? No, no, no way. You know, we've grown so much, and we've reconnected, and, and it, because they focused on their own responsibilities. And so that's where we want to hit when we talk about either a wife or a husband's responsibilities. Well, in verse 22, Paul specifically zeroes in on how wives do this, and he says that specific relationships are characterized by godly leadership and submission, and in marriage, he's going to deal with other versions of that, whether it's children or parents or bond servants and masters. But within marriage, a woman's submission to her husband is, is clearly stated here. And we cannot change this for risk of feeling like we're out of touch with our culture. right? But here in, in Ephesians, a woman's submission to her husband is not meant to imply in any way, again, that she's inferior to him. We just talked about how Genesis 1, from the first chapter of the Bible, that is clearly stated. So this is a matter of role, not a value of worth. As in the same way we would say that is Jesus inferior to the Father simply because he has the role of the Son? Is the Holy Spirit inferior to the Father or the Son simply because he has the role of helper and guide? No, of course not. That would do damage to our understanding of the Trinity. Uh, so that's true. But just in, in other relationships, a boss does not have more value or worth or dignity than an employee. And this is why we rightly get upset when bosses mistreat their employees. Because just because you're in charge, that's your role, doesn't mean that you're better or have more worth as a human being than me, even though I'm in a submissive position. And in fact, every day of our lives, we find ourselves in roles of submission, all of us. Almost never at any point of any day of your life have you not been in submission to someone in some form. And so, but it doesn't have to do, parents are not more human, have more dignity and worth than their children, but children are called to honor and obey their parents. So we, our culture misunderstands these words. And, and sometimes, let's be fair, it's because most of the time it's been men doing this. Men have misused those words to dominate domineer, um, and sometimes oppress women. And so sometimes the culture has learned the bad lessons of, of bad leadership. Uh, but it doesn't mean that we reject leadership, right? It's like, kind of like the United States Constitution, right? Uh, I forget who, what is, who, who it was originally said that it's the worst, it's the worst form of, uh, uh, of government except for all the others, right? Because human beings, we, we mix together, and there's no perfect way to root out corruption. We strive for that, but you know, government power will corrupt and there will be issues 
Um, just we have a system that tries to, to, to check those influences. But just because a president or a, a politician or a boss or a spouse misuses their authority doesn't imply that that authority itself is something that's wrong. So here, the question is, what does it mean then? A wife is told to submit to her own husband, by the way, not to every man, but to her spouse. And wives just submit to their husbands as to the Lord. So does this mean, ladies, that you are to regard and treat your husbands as omnipotent kings of the universe? Clearly that can't be what it means. But what it does mean is that part of a wife's obedience to Christ is to trust that what Christ has said is true and best and to follow his instructions to submit to the earthly authorities he has ordained. Whether that's a police officer uh, telling them to obey a command or whether it's a, a husband in his role or whether it's to pay your taxes to the government, how we submit into the, the different earthly authorities that God has ordained. And in the family, that authority is given to husbands. And that same phrase, as to the Lord, implies that the wife's first allegiance is not to her husband, but is in fact to Jesus Christ. And therefore, Paul doesn't in any way expect for her to submit to her husband in anything that would violate the commands of Scripture. So, Paul has, though, called wives to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. But secondly... We're told that the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. And while we initially think that that's, a, that's speaking to women, I think culturally we get that, it's actually speaking to men. It's setting the bar really high for male leadership. The word head there in verse 23 implies authority. Obvious here because the text says that Christ is the head of the church in verse 24. That the, that the church submits to Christ. And that analogy with Christ and the church really helps us unlock and understand what headship actually looks like. Meaning, it's not brashly barking orders, but it is benevolent, loving, servant-minded, sacrificial leadership. That's what headship is supposed to look like. The church follows Christ because of what Christ has overwhelmingly, how he has overwhelmingly loved, sacrificed, and given himself for us. He did this ultimately by laying down his life for us, showing his radical commitment not to himself primarily, although ultimately God receives all the glory of this, but he does this for our good and for his glory. He's able to do this in an amazing way. And did you notice there in the further description in verse 29 that um, husbands are to nourish and cherish their wives the way that Christ nourishes and cherishes his body, the, the, the church? So that's what... Headship means benevolent leadership, loving leadership, sacrificial leadership, not demanding, abusive, or oppressive leadership. So benevolent, loving, supportive submission, benevolent, loving, supportive leadership. And you see how they work together. Which leads to the third thing, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Notice what Paul doesn't say. It's implied, but notice that this is not the way he goes at talking to men. He doesn't say, women or wives, submit to your husbands unto the Lord, and husbands, be an authority over your wife. Even though that's true, that's not the way talks, Paul talks about it, is it? He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. How do you, how do you be an authority over your wives? Through loving them. 
Think about what that means, husbands. It may, for some of you, mean that you may literally have to lay down your life and die for your wife, right? But for all husbands, most of whom won't have to face that, it certainly means denying yourself and killing your pride in your relationship with her. It means actively building up your wife spiritually and thinking more about her needs and her desires and her preferences than even your own. And even when the day has been hard and you're both exhausted, it means you subordinate your preferences and your desires so that you can help and free up your wife to rest, even if it means you go to bed tired. Because it's not about you, it's about how you will lead her. Are you sacrificially loving her the way Christ loves us? That you might lead your wife to glorify God and pursue her joy more than you pursue your own joy. And sometimes that means making hard decisions. It means leading family and devotions and praying with your wife and and sometimes taking the hit for decisions that maybe you were dubious about, but... It doesn't mean you point your finger and say, I told you so. It means, okay, we made that decision and I take responsibility for it, even if I wasn't the one who came up with the idea. Let me give you a quote from John Chrysostom, who was dead a long time ago, early church father. But he, you know, so just so you don't think that this is anything new, that this is a modern day problem, okay? John Chrysostom, very early, way before the Reformation. And he was a famous preacher. And here's what he said. He said this in Latin, but I won't read it to you in Latin because neither I or you will understand what he meant. You'd have to talk to Cameron later. Um, he says this, quoting on Ephesians 5, 25. He says, do you wish that your wife would submit to you as the church does to Christ? Right? A lot of men would say, <laughs> then care for her as Christ does for the church And if necessary, that you should give your life for her or be cut into pieces a thousand times or endure anything whatsoever, then refuse it not. Yes, for if you were to suffer in these dreadful ways for your wife, you would still not have done what Christ did for you. For you did this only for one whom you were already united, but Christ did it for her who until then had only rejected and hated him. So husbands, remember your role fundamentally is to spend your strength for your family's good. Hence, verse 26, Christ gave himself up to sanctify, to make holy the church. So brothers, look for ways to love her, to honor her, to build her up, to care for her, so that she and your children would grow in godliness and contentment. Prioritize her in your life in such a way that she does not question her need to submit to you. Fourth thing. Marriage ultimately speaks to the world about Christ's relationship to his church. Verses 31 and 32, Paul says that God designed this institution of marriage primarily to reflect and proclaim Christ's love for the people of God. And that God planned from the very beginning for marriage to function in this way, even though that wasn't clear until Christ came. And what this means is that these instructions for husbands and wives aren't culturally conditioned, they're not accidental. That God designed marriage this way in order to teach the world something about himself and his son's love for his people. Which means that husbands, you have a terribly high calling. Because your love or lack of love in your marriage, your sacrifice or lack of sacrifice in marriage, sends out a signal to the world about what Christ is like. And in the same way, you wives have a terribly high calling. 
for your role in marriage is a parable about how God's people should respond to Christ. And that is something that this lost world desperately needs to see. Because we live in a world that celebrates autonomy and independence and self-reliance, self-aggrandizement. All qualities that are contrary to biblical Christianity. So where can our culture find a model of trustful respect and joyful deference to worthy leadership that is part of believing in Christ? One of the few places they can find it is in your marriage. If you're a Christian husband or a Christian wife. And what a privilege that is to be that model, to be that image bearer to the world. Now, how does this work out in various situations? I only have one time this morning to deal with one in about five minutes here. We'll talk about more things about decision-making and things next week, more practical applications. But let me just jump in with one of the big ones. I looked online and said, what is the biggest, what is one of the biggest concerns or questions that people have when we talk about things of submission and leadership? And it's, should wives work outside the home? So let's just not deal with something, let's deal with something super controversial, right? What should we say? You know, should letters of resignation be tendered this morning? Well, again, we've already seen from Genesis 2 that man's job is to work and keep the garden. His wife is to be his helper. We saw in Ephesians 5, a husband's calling to nourish and cherish his wife. Adam names her Eve because she is the life-giving mother who speaks of her role in bearing children and providing spiritual life to those around her. The curses in Genesis 3 specifically affect their previously defined roles. The man's job in working the ground will now be frustrated. The wife's bearing of children will now be more painful. And of course, men don't only put bread on the table, and not all women can or will have children. But all of this means that a husband's role as provider and protector and a wife's role as primary caregiver is not a cultural construct. It's not a traditional view. It is just the biblical view. It's part of God's creative order. The physical fact of a, last I checked, still true, despite the confusion, a woman's body, the only one designed to give birth and feed young, reminds us this. But how does this speak to our family lives? So the question isn't, should a wife or a mom work? The assumption is that husbands and wives are already both working full time. The question is, where does that work happen, and does it earn a paycheck, and does that matter? And this is an important thing to remember in our day, especially where one's job is often wrongly seen as the key to their identity. So because work for so many isn't merely a means to provide food and shelter, but it's their very self-expression. It's a purpose for life. It's fulfillment. It's identity. For many, it's the number one idol in their heart. So Don't get me wrong, work inside or outside the home is meaningful and important, but work makes a terrible God. And yet so many of our, in our culture and even within our churches, bow before this false idol. Now, let me just say the Bible doesn't give us a law on whether a married woman, particularly one who has children to care for, should earn a paycheck outside the home or not. It's not in the Bible. But it doesn't mean that the Bible is silent on giving us advice. Okay, so with this, I think we're in the category of biblical wisdom. Wisdom that can be applied differently in different situations, which means you may make a different decision from the family next door, and that's all right, as long as you're applying this wisdom to your family in the right way. We should also remember that in many families, both parents need to earn incomes out of some necessity, 
And we also have to remember that single moms in particular often don't have the luxury of even having to consider this question. And so if there are single moms, they have a difficult task, an exhausting task, especially if dad is not in the picture of being both provider and helper to their family. Okay? So all those things we have to take into consideration. But too often, the, we have to be careful because too often the question, should a wife work outside the home, has had very middle or upper class assumptions behind it. And we need to recognize not everyone always gets the luxury of even wrestling with these questions. But it can be helpful for us to how we apply scripture when we don't have a direct command. Right? It would be much easier if we had, you know, uh, you know, in Hezekiah 13, 12, it just said, women, you can work outside the home. Or women, you shouldn't work outside. We'd be have a very clear verse. We could say, well, that's what it says. We don't have that. So how do we do this? Well, Titus 2 that Nevin read to us has this description of women. It says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, and kind and submissive to their own husbands. So some Christians have heard Titus 2.5, which says that wives should be working at home, or it could be translated busy at home. And they've interpreted that to mean that any and all work outside the home is inappropriate. The fact that the wife should primarily, though, care for the home, I would say, doesn't necessarily imply that she can't work outside the home. The point of this phrase here, and I think it's consistent with the entire Bible all the way back to Genesis is that women, and especially moms, should take it as their God-given primary responsibility to cultivate their home, providing a godly and nurturing environment for their, for their families, regardless of whatever else she does. And it can be helpful here to clarify what we mean by home. Because if you're a critic of this verse, you complain that it advances oppressive 1950s June Cleaver-esque domesticity, some of you kids don't know who June Cleaver is. You ask, them, ask an adult around you, and if they don't know, find someone with grayer hair. <laughs> Does this mean that the essence of biblical womanhood is being a domestic diva who makes every meal from scratch, knits all of her kids' clothes by hand, and vacuums the house every day in high heels and pearls? Is that what it means? No. Scripture does not equate working at home with fitting a cultural mode of being some era's version of a homemaker. But the home, biblically speaking, is primarily, just like the church is not primarily about a building, the home is not primarily about the building. It's about the people and the relationships that take place there. It has so much more to do with the, uh, those who live in the house and their spiritual well-being than the house itself. There's a really good book that I read uh, the last two weeks, by Courtney Reisig, R-E-I-S-S-I-G, called The Accidental Feminist, that I thought was really uh, interesting. She, listen to her on this. She says, The purpose of the home is not to showcase all of your nice things and reveal that you have arrived as a domestic goddess. The purpose of the home is about feeding souls, providing a refuge for the weary, and living generously. The home, then, is a place of work. It is a place where life happens. The home is not the pinnacle of greatness, Christ is. And God cares about our homes because so much of our lives happen there. So where do we see this scriptural view of a woman being a primarily oriented toward the good of her home? Notice significantly, it's the same place where we saw a woman engaging in successful business efforts outside the home. Proverbs 31. The woman that we looked at there, depicted, has lots of responsibilities, and a lot of them fall outside of the four walls of their house. 
She buys and sells land. She plants vineyards. She starts a textile business. But all of this was done with the end and goal in mind of caring well for her family and fulfilling her responsibilities to them. Verse 27 of that proverb, she looks well to the ways of her household. And so verse 28, her children rise up and call her blessed. So she doesn't embark on entrepreneurial endeavors in a quest to find herself or to find her own meaning or to make a name for herself apart from her family. She does so to serve her family. And in the end, it's from her family, especially her husband and her children, and ultimately her God, that she desires praise. So let me just give you some questions as I close to regard whether how to make a decision, because I'm not going to give you the answer. Because I don't know your individual circumstances well enough to answer this. And you need to discuss these things as husbands and wives, and I pray you already have. But if you haven't, here's questions to ask. One, what, are, what, are, what, what would be your motives for, do, for working outside the home? That's something a wife should ask. What, what are my motives? Or as Neville would say, what does it mean, right? Does a wife simply want to make for her, a name for herself outside of the home, apart from her husband, because she desires the praise of the world? That would be a wrong motivation, right? It's hard, though, sometimes to go to the neighborhood dinner party and simply say, I'm a homemaker. But because we might be embarrassed from our world doesn't mean we should do something that might be harmful to our family. The temptation to look for work outside the home for affirmation and identity is a real thing. So Susie might work in finance because she cares about the prestige. But Sally, on the other hand, might also work in finance because she desires to bless her family and community and she's able to earn good money while still putting her first energies toward her home. Completely different motives, maybe the same exact job. So what does this say about what, what are your motives in doing this? Two, to what degree is it necessary? I know this is something my sister's had to deal with, like working full time or she works like .812 time or something like that because she needed more time. She wants to homeschool uh, her kids. It doesn't necessarily mean quitting her job, but it could mean reducing her hours. We can live without my full paycheck because uh, it's more important for me to, to, to teach my kids. So that's an example, right, from our own church. But various circumstances may apply. But how is it necessary? There are situations where both spouses need to work absolutely full-time. And everyone else has to evaluate that. So be careful. Because if a certain amount of money seems like it's a necessity, it could be possible that a family is aiming for too high of a lifestyle at the expense of other things in their life. Merely keeping up with the Joneses or the neighbors is not a sufficient reason for uh, mom to take a job. And don't forget, wife's work at home carries significant financial value. I think it was Forbes who did a, an evaluation. and They said if you had to hire professionals to do everything that a, that a traditional homemaker does, it, it's equivalent of a sixty dollars to $100,000 salary depending on where you live. So evaluate what your actual needs are and then how your jobs fit into that. And thirdly, what gifts, talents, opportunities, stewardships, what kind of these things has God given to you in your particular season of life? Because this might change. It might be different when you have little kids, when they're grown, when you're empty nesters. What does it look like? And in all of these things, for husbands and for wives, do the pursuit of our desires, do the pursuit of our dreams and goals, are they additive and beneficial for our family's spiritual life and health? 
Or are they detracting for our ability to disciple our children and do that? There's no guarantees about any of this in regards to this, but that's your main responsibility, husbands and wives, as to each other and to those kids before God. And if either one of your jobs, husband or wife, this could apply equally to husbands, if they're working 90 hours a week and never see their families and never see their kids, it could be an indication, you know what, I need to take a pay cut and take a lesser job because it's affecting my ability to, to, to really be a godly husband and father. So it doesn't just apply to wives. It's a question, and it could even apply, by the way, to single people who can be selfish about their ambitions as opposed to looking to say, how does this help me effectively serve my church and serve those around me and my community? How to, so ask questions. Too often we make decisions simply because it's expedient, it feels right, it, uh, it's what I've always wanted. And that can be for men, women, married, single, everything in between. It can even happen in the life of the church. Let's do what works so that we can have more, have more influence. But is it at the detriment of doing what God calls us to do? The keeping, and these types of decisions, as we'll talk about next Sunday, Lord willing, are not unilateral decisions that should be made just by uh, a wife or just by her husband. But rather, husbands and wives should make these types of decisions together, prayerfully, thoughtfully, and ultimately under the leadership of a husband as the beneficial, loving, benevolent, sacrificial head of their, of their households. So the question in this case isn't, can a mom or a wife work outside the home? She has the ability and biblical warrant to do so. The question is, how do we all, in all the decisions that we make in family, wisely arrange our priorities to make the most of the talents and gifts that God has given to us that would fit according to the roles that the Bible instructs us in. And again, that can be a little bit different from situation to situation. So I don't have an answer for you, but hopefully we've used this example to see how we can take our knowledge of theology and apply it and think through particular issues. And we'll talk more about that, uh, how to do that next week. We're going to talk about decision-making and some of these things, okay? So way out of time. We pray. Father, we thank you for your word that it instructs us and that it often, we're thankful that it often does not tell us directly the answer so that we would have to do some hard work of thinking through and praying and, and sometimes agonizing over decisions because it ultimately draws us to your word and it draws us closer to one another and so help us to do that. But whether we are single or whether we are married, may we apply the truth of scripture in such ways that would glorify you and benefit one another within the body of Christ and use each and every one of us in the life of our church whether we're single or married, have children or not, whether we're men or women, to use the God-given roles and responsibilities and talents and gifts that you have given to each of us for the betterment not primarily of ourselves, but for the betterment of each other and for the glory of your name. For we pray it in the name of Christ our King who gave himself for us. Amen.